Today's scripture is Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of our lead pastors here. And as we start our series on countercultural convictions, I want to start today by talking about what are the postures that we should take as we engage and participate in culture as believers. And I want to start this off by asking a question for us to think about. When it comes to culture, are Christians the heroes or the villains? When it comes to culture, are we the good guys or are we the bad guys? Because people can and have made a case for both. On one hand, there has been no group, no community that has stepped into the world and so changed the world for the good. Things that we assume as normal are not normal until Jesus steps into the world and calls his community to bear God's image and to care for those who are made in his image and to love your neighbor as yourself. Ideas like caring for women and children and the elderly and the sick and orphans and the poor and the immigrant and the disabled were often rare or foreign until the gospel starts permeating the world and it, then it begins alleviating the suffering of so many of those people and affirming the dignity of them. Out of Christian communities who opened up their Bible and said, we need to take these words seriously. They started some of the most life-giving institutions the world has ever known. Hospitals grew out of Christians caring for the sick and the poor who were put out of the house. Universities uh, and, and scientific discovery grew out of the Christian ideas of cultivating and studying uh, the gifts of God's creation. There's medicine. Even the idea of a non-transactional charity for the poor, which you kind of take as normative in these days, was very foreign until the words of Christ started permeating the world and forming communities that would go out and embody these things. One of the greatest injustices in history, that of the, the slave trade, where, where slavery was so common throughout the world for, for uh, thousands of years, and then the abolition of the slave trade comes from believers who are opening their Bible and saying, how can we push against this? Anywhere you go in the world, says Nicholas Kristof, famous journalist, agnostic. He says, anywhere you go in the world where there is profound, deep suffering, you will find a group of Christians at great cost to themselves pouring themselves out to alleviate that suffering and to bring life into the places of death. Are we the good guys? Or are we the bad guys? 
Because that's not the only story out there. You can look in the history books, you can look in the news, and you can be torn apart as you read about people opening up their Bibles and coming to the conclusion that as a celebrity pastor, you should have your own private jet. People who hold the Bible in their hand, covering up child abuse scandals. The suffering that came through things like crusades and the Salem witch trials and colonialism, which stripped people of their their culture and their languages. The forced conversion through the Inquisition. The fact that KKK rallies often open in prayer in a reading of Scripture. And that while there were people abolishing the slave trade, there were people opening up their Bibles and fighting against those people. So much so that Frederick Douglass said that the worst slave owner was a Christian slave owner because they used the Bible to justify what they did. Are we the good guys or the bad guys? The heroes or the villains? How do you make sense of so much life of so much positive transformation that gets injected into the world from picking up and reading the Bible. And yet so much evil from people plucking out verses and making them say what they want them to say. How do we make sense of that? Friends, we are not the heroes or the villains. But when you look at Scripture... Throughout, the, from Genesis to Revelation, what you see is that God is calling a people to be his people. Not to just be people who huddle up in a room and feel good about themselves, but a people that are God's witnesses, his light to the nations. A people who represent him to the world and to love our neighbors, who proclaim his glory and, and, and contribute to the flourishing of his world. But with the Bible in our hands, the only way we end up being that type of community is if we take the whole biblical story seriously. Each movement in the biblical story shapes a different posture that we have toward culture, and we need to have all of the postures together. And when we do, we are a life-giving community. When we take creation seriously, and we become culture makers who contribute to the world's flourishing. When we take the fall seriously, we see that there's sin and idolatry in the world and we push against it. When we take redemption seriously, we see that Jesus is the hero and we proclaim the gospel. And when we see restoration, the end of the story, we see that there's a kingdom, there's a day that's coming when God makes all things new and that we get to be a preview of that kingdom. We need the whole biblical story together. But when we start chopping off and mutilating our Bibles and just pulling out little verses and losing the grand narrative, that's when we become people who are not instruments of life for the world, but instruments of death. So today what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the biblical story and we're going to look at how each movement of the biblical story shapes our posture towards culture. So let's pray because we need mercy. God, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In our lives, in our our hearts, in our community, 
and in the world. We pray that your spirit would stir in us the things that we need to hear and how we can contribute and play our part in your big story. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's talk through the biblical story. In the beginning, the first movement of the biblical story is creation. We've got the arrow pointing down because it's God steps into the world. In the very beginning, Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God. God is the hero of the story. And he begins over five days creating this incredible masterpiece of, 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 of the sun and the stars and fish with their gills somehow able to breathe underwater. And these little rats flying in the sky called birds. He creates this incredible masterpiece of creation. And he looks over all of it and he declares that it is good. Not okay, not fine, not neutral material. Good. But there's something that's better than the birds and the fish and, all, and the trees. There's the pinnacle of his creation. The, the, the masterpiece of his masterpiece, which is humans. He creates Adam and Eve in his image, and he gives them a unique identity and a unique calling that is distinct from the whole rest of creation. The unique identity he gives them is that it says that they are created in his image, male and female created in his image in verse 27. And, and there's a lot to unpack there, but at its core, what it means is that humans are made to be like living, breathing portraits of what God is like. That when you see humanity at its best, you see a glimpse of God. When you see human creativity, you see a glimpse of God's creativity. When you see human wisdom, you see a glimpse of the wisdom of God. When you see provision coming through the work of human hands, you see a glimpse of the God who is the provider, a unique identity made in God's image. But they bear God's image, not just by being a static like statue or a static portrait, but they bear his image in what they do. They have a unique calling, a calling to be culture makers, to sink their hands into the raw material of the world and actually cultivate God's hidden gifts, his hidden blessings that he put in creation. And to, to bring out culture out of the soil of the earth. Genesis 2.15 is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture and it's so subtle you can miss it. It says, for the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Did you catch what's happening there? Oftentimes we think that God created the world for humans, like a grand buffet for our own survival. But this is actually saying, like, that might be true, but humans are also created for the earth. It says, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. There's a divine calling to be God's gardeners in the world, to cultivate the hidden potential and the hidden gifts that he embedded in the world. This is explicit here in the, the, the words abad and shamar. These are the words for to work it and to keep it. Kind of sounds like a like 90s 
you know, pop song to work it in to keep it. But this is actually way more agricultural than 90s pop. It's agricultural imagery of a farmer or of a gardener taking a plot of land and not just leaving it alone, but beginning to rearrange it in such a way that the potential of that plot of the land begins to produce something. And so humans are not called to bear God's image by just standing around and looking at things, but God invites them to step into his world and says, make culture. Work it and keep it. Draw the hidden potential out of culture into the soil of the earth. There are beautiful paintings and sturdy buildings and joyful playgrounds and delicious recipes and the absolutely perfect game of basketball. (laughs) The, The human calling, the first posture that we have towards culture is not to be culture warriors or cultural critics who just go around and talk about stuff, but is to be culture makers. Let me illustrate it another way. There's the explicit call to be culture makers in this passage, but I actually love the more implicit call. Let me ask this question. In Genesis 1 and 2, what did God not create? Now, the good church answer is he created everything. Of course he created everything, but no, he didn't. Let me name something he didn't create in Genesis 1 and 2. Pancakes. (laughs) Do you notice that there is an observable absence of pancakes in Genesis 1 and 2? Even if you look in the Hebrew, nothing about pancakes in there. And what's amazing is that Adam and Eve were not... They don't step into a world with prefabricated tables already loaded with buttery pancakes and fresh-squeezed orange juice with sheds out in the field with with, uh, tools, and and suddenly they've got an iPhone that has uh, a preloaded list of friends. They, They don't have any of that. It's absent in creation. And that absence is intentional and it is beautiful because what God is doing is he is showing restraint and hospitality. Restraint to not make everything that would ever be made. And hospitality to invite humans, his own image bearers, to say, to to join with him, to partner with him. And him saying, I am going to continue to make these things. I'm going to make poetry and buildings and pancakes but I'm going to do them through the work of your hands as you cultivate the potential that I have hidden and embedded in the world. And as you cultivate that potential, you experience the blessing and the gifts that God is continuing to give to humanity. Adam and Eve aren't just called to just walk around and look at stuff. They're not called to just look at the rocks, but they're called to explore those rocks and find the the hidden potential of steel in there, which would create buildings like the church in which you worship now or the hospital in which you had your surgery or your home that didn't collapse on your head when you slept at night because of God's hidden gift of steel. God invites us to be like little kids who make sandcastles and play with the sand. Don't just look at the sand, but you get to play with the sand. But, But as you get older, Humans have cultivated the stucco for walls 
and the, and the material for our streets and sidewalks and the silicon that is used in the semiconductors of our computers and our phones. God says, come, take this, the, the sand into your hand and cultivate something. Cultivate glass. And not just glass, stained glass for a church, but, but glass for all of life to create glasses and microscopes and telescopes to further enjoy and see the gifts of my world. The implication is here, here is that God is not telling them, just walk around and look at the trees, especially the maple tree. But to put your hands on that maple tree and go and find the hidden gifts that God has embedded for thousands of years inside the, the trunk and the sap of a maple tree, God had hidden a gift called maple syrup. And he was waiting for a human being to take a hammer and tap into it and experiment with boiling temperatures and to draw out that gooey goodness over which you drizzle upon those pancakes and declare Saturday mornings as sacred space to enjoy the gifts of God, right? This isn't a sermon about pancakes. (laughs) This is a sermon about our primary posture, our primary call to culture, is not to be culture warriors, but to be culture makers, who who take a posture in the world of gardeners, that look at every aspect of life, your office, your home, your dinner table, your life out in society, your Facebook page, and look at it as an opportunity to cultivate the potential for the life of others. It's so easy to be against things. But as, as believers, what if we were the unique people who were for things and saw God's grace and generosity and pancakes and actually made some good pancakes, who made good culture, who made good websites and good patterns of life and through good parties in which we enjoyed the gifts of God's creation, who did good work that that serves others and is for the life of the world. I see this in this community. So many of you have that posture of a gardener, of a culture maker. There's some folks uh, who take the posture of a gardener in their living room, some folks I I love very much. And, And what they do is they say, rather than being shaped by just screens everywhere. And rather than just complaining about technology, we're going to view our living room as a space that we can cultivate as God's garden. So they fill it with instruments and they fill it with music and they cultivate the garden of sound in the evenings as they enjoy and experience God's generosity of music and their culture makers in their living room. There's a guy um, in the church who I love the way that he cultivates the garden of the marketplace. His name is Josh. Everybody here is named Josh, so that doesn't distinct, uh, doesn't make much of a distinction. Uh, but, but, you know, he's the guy who kind of looks like a cross between, like, Jesus and a CIA agent. And this guy is so good when it comes to business and, and his role in the marketplace that his investment company is providing hundreds of jobs for families who otherwise wouldn't have a job, formerly incarcerated people, uh, refugees who are coming here. And he looks at the marketplace as his garden to cultivate good culture. We see the, the garden of language. 
No, some people are saying, look, I am so tired and so exhausted and doing so much, I don't even know where to be a, a culture maker. But I know someone who just has 10 minutes a day and during those 10 minutes writes a note of encouragement to somebody. And as she opens up that note of encouragement and puts pen to paper, she asks that God would help her to cultivate the garden of language to be a blessing to others, to rearrange letters and sounds and grammar in such a way that it gives life to others. And every year, hundreds of, of, of notes are deployed from her home that connect to every industry around and encourage and, and, and uh, spark on other people. And she's a gardener, the gardener of language. So when we look at Genesis 1, we desperately need it because it forms within the body of Christ a posture of culture making that historically has led to scientific discovery, work that provides for families, beautiful art, and not just critiquing culture, but being culture makers. And I wish that we could end the sermon there. Because life is not just Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 is never revoked. It's actually repeated throughout the story. But there's a new reality, a brutal reality, that injects itself into the world. It's the presence of the fall. In Genesis 3, we see the fall beginning. We open up and we see Adam and Eve in this unbelievable garden buffet where they can enjoy whatever they want and, 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 and explore whatever they want. Just one rule. Don't eat from that tree, the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Just one rule. All of it. I'm sure the maple tree was open game. Like they could, they could go for that. But in verse 1, we're introduced to this evil, conniving character. Satan, in the form of a serpent, begins to manipulate and deceive Adam and Eve. And it says that he is crafty. And in verse 6, we see such simple words which are actually pretty devastating. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And as they walked toward that tree, they walked away from God, taking all of humanity and the flourishing world with them. This is not just a cute little snack, but this is a rebellious middle finger toward God. It ultimately wasn't about the fruit but it was about looking the God who had generously given them everything and saying, no, I'm going to have it my way. It's an attempt to dethrone God. And as they plucked the fruit from the tree and they sunk their teeth, waiting to taste life and knowledge, they began to taste death. And as the juice was still dripping off their chin, the world began to unravel. And that the, the key relationships that existed in the garden all began to unravel and tear and rip and experience alienation. Our, our relationship with God, our relationship with others, our social life together, and our relationship with the physical world 
all begin to fall apart. Adam and Eve just had the most devastating sentence here in verse 8. Because when they heard God walking, they started hiding. In verse 8 it says, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The very trees that he gave them as the gift to cultivate. They are now hiding, using to hide from him. And that was the first domino in our alienation from God to where all humans, because of sin entering into the world, now experience that degree of alienation from God and distance from God. They had formerly walked with him in the cool of the day. Now they're hiding from him in the, in the trees. And right now, because of what happened in that moment, someone is sitting somewhere on a couch on Instagram and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And their heart is longing for something to attach to and they will never find it because they are longing for God and, 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 and the deep connection that cannot be found on Instagram or in any other area of life. And we take the gifts of his creation and we start hiding from him. And if that was only the worst thing, then that would be something, but it even goes further. What you see is that humanity, following after Adam and Eve, rebelling against God, actually take those very trees that he gave and they start, and the hands that he gave them to cultivate the world, and they start fashioning little statues that can't hear, that can't speak, that are just like little wooden statues, and they start bowing down to them and calling them their gods. What an insult. The God who gave you the hands and created the trees, now you're worshiping the trees. And that may seem silly, but we do the same thing. We do the same thing when we take his gifts of power and money and nations and sex, and we take a good thing and we turn it into an ultimate thing and we bow down to it. And all idolatry connects to that day. And whole cultures are, are being distorted and twisted as they make something else than God the centerpiece. Including our own. The cultures in our family. The cultures in our community. All of them. We also see... Uh, the, the, the tear in the fabric of social relationships, the relationships with people begin to fall apart. In verse 12, we see Adam and Eve begin to blame each other for what happened in the garden. And that first marital spat was the first domino that sets off a history of social brokenness, conflict and divorce and adultery and injustice and shame, and abuse, and suspicion, these ugly words got started on that day. Right now, because of what happened in the garden, somebody is twisting the, together the wires of a bomb. Right now, someone is sitting outside of a hotel, ready to send that text message that's going to facilitate the adultery that's going to have impact on that family for generations. It began then in Genesis 3. And the, the social impacts of the fall are, fill our culture, all aspects of culture as well. And finally, the third relationship that experiences this alienation is our relationship with creation, with the physical world. 
In verses 16 through 19, there's this description of the curse, and it talks about how pain and death have now entered the world. Pain is coming through childbearing and, and through, uh, through work. There's now thorns and thistles involved with work. And the very gifts of being fruit, of fruitfulness, of, of having kids and building families and building communities and doing good work and making culture, now that is even infected by the fall. And we see that this isn't contained to Genesis 3, but it actually extends. You can think of the fall as Genesis 4 through 11 as well. Because what we see is that the alienation from God, from each other, and from creation then begins to infiltrate and infect all of culture and all of life. And devastating things start happening. You see in Genesis 4, Work gets corrupted by the fall. Cain and Abel live in their good agrarian life, able to use their hands to cultivate God's world. But one day, Cain gets jealous and he takes those hands that were meant for cultivation and he puts hands on his brother and takes his life. Work gets corrupted. We also see the corruption of, of government as Cain, the former farmer, now murderer, founds a city that's filled with corruption. And even today, we feel the, the results of that. Right now, some lobbyist is figuring out a way to pay enough money to get some unjust policy passed. Right now, someone is sitting in a prison cell who's innocent because they didn't have enough money to figure out how to get good representation. That all comes from the fall. We see the distortion of art. One of the first songs you hear in all of Scripture is this guy Lamech. And he like comes out of nowhere and he's singing a song to his wives about how he's like the best murderer around. And then you see te technology, the fallenness of technology as people come together to bring this Tower of Babel to create a homogenous superpower that seeks to rival God's power. And so sin and the effects of sin has infiltrated and affects everything. Family, work, art, commerce, food, city planning, even pancakes. It's devastating. And when we read about the fall, it shapes a posture that we have toward culture. It helps us to realize that we live in a world where we very well could be contributors to idolatry, contributors to injustice and the social brokenness in the world, contributors to the physical pain of others. And the, and the serpent, who was crafty then, is crafty now. So crafty that he could make it to where we think that we are the okay ones and the other people are out there are the real problem. How, the, how common is that? See, the most countercultural thing we can do, the most, is to look in the mirror and say, God, search me. Show me where I am wrong, where I am off, where I have been an instrument of idolatry, of injustice, of injury in the lives of others. If that's all we did, is, was a people of repentance who took Jesus' word seriously of taking the log out of our own eye, the, the church would be this beautiful countercultural community that was, was finding where we are broken and where we are wrong and being a people of repentance, 
humbled, pushing it back against the effects of the fall out in the world, but looking in the mirror first before we head out into the world. So that's the fall. Cultivating a posture of repentance and resisting broken culture. But then we move to redemption. You see, redemption doesn't start when Jesus shows up. But the story of redemption, God's mission to rescue the world, actually starts in Genesis 12. It starts in Genesis 12, where God forms this ragtag group of people who are unimpressive. And he forms a community. And he says, your whole purpose is to be a blessing to the nations. To be a blessing to the ends of the earth and therefore show the world what I am like. To be a witness. In other words, he's forming a countercultural community that pushes back against the effects of the fall and cultivates God's world. And did they do it? No. Time and time again, this community fails. And instead of being a blessing to the nations, they themselves fall into idolatry. They themselves fall into injustice. They themselves become an instrument of injury and pain in the world. And there's a cycle of repentance and returning to God. And then there's this, the, the group of faithful people keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller until there's only one left. And his name is Jesus. That God's plan of redemption, his plan of making things right that were lost in the fall, is, is held into one person, Jesus. Fully God, fully human, who steps out into the world and lives the perfectly righteous life that we could not live for ourselves, showing us what real, true humanity was supposed to look like. Giving us a glimpse of humanity without the effects of sin. And then, the one who should never experience death goes and takes on the full brutality of, of the fall when he climbs up onto the cross and dies for our sins. But he doesn't stay there. He's not just a martyr. Three days later, he is risen and he comes out of the grave showing that he is the, the first fruit of what God is going to do to the whole creation just as Jesus is resurrected, God is one day going to renew and restore and resurrect all that's broken. Probably the best description of this, commentary of this, comes from the early Colossian church. They had this, this creed, this, it was likely a hymn that they would sing to one another to remind them who Jesus is. And it came in Colossians 1, 19 through 20. It says, in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the amazing things that humanity experienced in the garden and the fullness of Jesus is showing up in Jesus. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What you see here is the scope of redemption. That, that God is on a mission to renew and restore all that was lost in the fall and all that was broken. And that the humans who repent and believe in Jesus, they can be a part of that reconciliation and restoration as well. When it says he's doing all things, it's not just that he's snatching some souls out of the earth. 
But everything that the serpent tried to go after, he's coming after it. He's reconciling humans to God so that we're in right relationship with him. He's reconciling us to each other so that that people who were former enemies now become brothers and reconciling us to the world, the physical world that is broken. And if you get anything from Colossians, it's this, that Jesus is the hero of the story. He is the hero. We asked earlier, are we heroes or are we villains? No, Jesus is the hero. He is the one who brings the transformation. He is the one who brings the reconciliation. And we've got to understand the right job description. Because he's the one who ultimately saves the world and not us. And when we get our job description wrong and we think that it all hinges upon us, we begin cutting corners. We begin thinking that we're the big deal. We, we end up manipulating and, and doing all kinds of things to try to change culture where we are powerless. Jesus is not powerless. And the transformation that comes from the gospel is so profound that part of our posture towards culture is that we need to be people who proclaim the true hero, who proclaim the gospel, who proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That word evangelism has fallen out of popularity, but if we understood what it really was of announcing that people can come to know the God who is reconciling all things, we would see it as such a gift. And so our role is to almost function like ambassadors in every area of life. Instead of proclaiming our methods and our strategies, proclaiming Jesus as the true hero who can bring about the change. This happened in in my life. Um, All weekend long, I was thinking about how to articulate this because it's kind of sensitive. But my family and my group of friends, kind of the culture around us, we, there's a history, especially in my family, of parents, especially fathers, abandoning their children. It's, It's almost baked in. I got on the Ancestry.com stuff, and I'd go back 150 years, and over and over again, somebody is turning away from their families to, to pursue some ambition. I mean, I mean, it goes way back. There's a story in my family that my great-grandpa was the one who invented dog food, but he destroyed his family in the process. But that ambition just gripped him. And when my daughter was born, I was sitting in Turkey. I was holding her in my arms. And there is nothing in the world that I want more than to be there for her. But the the thing that terrified me then and continues in some ways to terrify me is this idea of 150 years of a particular culture, maybe more, stacked against me that I would walk out on my daughter. As I held her in in Turkey when she was born, I was pleading with God, don't let me leave this girl. Help me remember this day and this moment. And a few weeks ago when I had the opportunity to baptize her, and when she came out of the water, I was holding her in a similar way that I was holding her when she was a baby. And was realizing 
that she's 12 years old and I've never walked out on her. She's 12 years old and by the age of 12, almost everyone in my family, their parents are gone. And the only way I can make sense of that is the gospel being entering into my life and changing my heart and, and therefore changing the culture in which I was living. And as I look around, the others in my family who've come to faith, they've showed up for their kids as well. The seed of the gospel taking root and bringing about transformation. And throughout the whole 150 years, and probably goes even further than that, I guarantee you there were some people who had some good advice and were telling people, don't abandon your kids. But what we needed was not good advice, but we needed the good news to change us from the inside out. And so our posture towards culture, shaped by redemption, is to be people who proclaim Jesus as the true hero of the story. And this leads us to the final movement in the biblical story of restoration. You see, Jesus didn't just like resurrect from the grave and then just like just bounce. But he forms a community called the church who's called to be a countercultural community that bears witness and, and provides a preview of what is to come. He told them that he was coming back and that he, when he comes back, he's going to make all things right. And part of the way that he shaped this community was by giving them the book of Revelation. It's got a lot of wild imagery. But what it was is it was a glimpse of what it will be like when Jesus comes to renew and restore all things. And he gives them this glimpse so that they can be a people who in their life provide a preview of what is to come. Some of the imagery that's used here is in Revelation 21. In Revelation 21 verses 3 through 5, it says, Look, the dwelling place God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. The God we walked away from in the garden is coming to be back with us, to dwell with us. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The day is coming when you won't have to scroll Instagram anymore because the very God that you're longing for will be right there. Close, intimate, your father. And it says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I'm making all things new. Not I'm making all new things and starting over. I'm making all things new. And all that was lost in Genesis 3, God is taking back for himself restoring our relationship with him, bringing uh, formerly enemies together to be restored to one another, and then wiping away the tears from our eyes, the tears that have cried when the child has wandered away, or when the father has left the home, or when the, 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 the stage four cancer diagnosis comes. Those things will be no more, and Jesus will be making things right. And the reason why... He does the, the, what we see in Revelation is we see this picture of a restored kingdom. And, and you see it in other parts of Scripture as well. 
It gives us this imagery of streets of gold, of nations bringing in their, their best cultural products into the presence of heaven, of, of fig, everyone having their own fig leaf and vine to sit under. And what they're doing in those days is they're, they're using the imagery that they had then to try to give you a picture of what the kingdom is like and how it's even going to be better. Warren Williams and I, uh, we were like five or six years ago, we were at a Caribbean restaurant, and we, we posed this question. We said, what would it look like if John and the other p- people in Scripture who are talking about God's restoration, if they were using language of our day? So I kept notes from that conversation because it was an impactful conversation. We imagined that it would describe Band-Aids becoming stickers to remind children of the God who heals the nations because Band-Aids would be needed no more. We imagined a day where the 24-hour news cycle constantly reports on the good, true, and beautiful world that Jesus has made. We imagined a day where strip clubs would be repurposed into museums that celebrate the dignity of women. In those days, we were imagining Syria, and today, I think, Afghanistan, that it would become the ultimate vacation destination so safe that you could sleep in the streets because God's presence had made it safe. Prisons would be repurposed into first-class elementary schools. And the purpose of the IRS (laughs) would be to call you and explain in great detail all of the blessings that you have in life (laughs) because God has restored all things. Let's live into this story. As we push into the call to be culture makers in creation, the call to be a people of repentance from the fall, the call to proclaim the gospel from redemption, and the call to be a preview people who give a glimpse of what the kingdom is like, we will be a blessing to the world that creates things like hospitals and cares for uh, refugees and women, who proclaims the truth of the gospel amongst a world of idols. And I know that as I close, I want to just say this one thing, that I know that within some of you, it's stirring this dissonance, saying, why isn't it like that today? I see these two groups of Christians sort of forming, and I don't know how to name them. Some of them seem to care about the evangelism stuff. Some of them seem to care about the justice stuff. And I want to say that we, our church, fits into neither of those pockets. We bring both together. And the only way that those pockets are created is if we truncate the biblical story, if we mutilate it, if we cut off parts of the story. And there's two ways I want to warn us to not mutilate the biblical story. The first one is called the armless story. The armless story is very common. It's when we cut off the reality of creation and we cut off Restoration. We cut off the, the beginning and the end of the Bible. We cut off the arms of the biblical story. That's what we call it, the armless story. And so you're left with a, a story that goes something like this. You've sinned. You've fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus came to die, on your, to die for your sins so that you could go to heaven. All of it's true, but it's missing some major things. Like the resurrection, for one thing, right? And... If we live into that story, it's going to shape our engagement with culture. Let me just ask a question. 
If you were to cut off my arms right now, how would that affect my life? Uh, you can answer. Basketball, definitely affect basketball, tying shoes, those sorts of things. It would affect my tangible engagement with the world. But what would still work? My mouth and talking and the mind. And when you cut off the arms of the biblical story, it has a similar effect. When we live into that story, we don't care about things like justice and caring for creation and work and art. And we just talk about how Jesus is just going to pluck us out of the earth and make us like vague cherubim in the sky, right? But then there's another way of truncating the biblical story, and that's the heartless story. And that's when we cut out, or at least downplay, the significance of the fall and sin's entrance in the world and the need to repent. And and we cut out redemption, the centrality of Jesus as the true hero. And, And what that does is, it shapes the way that we engage culture. If you were to cut out my heart right now, how would that affect my life? Dead. Good. Somebody understands biology. <laughs> Without my heart, I would die. And in the same way, when we cut out redemption uh, and the fall from the biblical story, we're left with a story that has no life that doesn't have the good news that Jesus comes in and dies for our sins and is the one who can change us from the inside out. So as a church, we will be tempted, even in this series, but in every aspect of our life, to live into one of these truncated stories. But let's pray, let's plead, let's lean into and ask God to make us a community that sees the importance of creation and becomes culture makers who does good work for the life of the world, who sees the devastation of the fall and says, I'm going to do everything I can to push against that, especially where it shows up in me. To be a people who take redemption seriously and says that I'm not the hero, we're not the hero, Jesus is the hero and announces him. And it takes restoration seriously and says, we're going to be a community that lives in such a way that we give people a little taste, a little preview of the good that is coming. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I pray for those right now who are who are trying to think of what their garden is that you've called them to cultivate, that you would speak to them now and bring that to mind. God, we ask that you would show us the ideologies and the idols that we need to repent of, that you would help us to see with clarity where that repentance needs to be, that you would embolden us and make us people who announce the good news and that you would give us a creative vision of being a community that shows what it's like when you make all things new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.